When I was young, I loved watching Oprah Winfrey's talk show. I'd run home from school, plop down in front of the television, and watch this bold black woman lead interviews on different topics. It was fascinating, sometimes horrifying, but definitely enlightening. One woman that I saw a lot of on this show was named Jane Elliott. She was a teacher turned consultant who ran a workshop that blew up across the world called the Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes Experiment. It was about unconscious bias. Jane Elliott is a celebrated educator and anti-racism activist, especially for this Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes experiment that she first started facilitating for her students in 1968 after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In this experiment, Jane splits her students into two groups based on eye color. She told them that people with brown eyes were superior to those with blue eyes for reasons that she entirely made up, such as that brown-eyed people are smarter, more civilized, and better than blue-eyed people. Brown-eyed students would be treated better and be given special privileges compared to the blue-eyed children, such as longer lunches or recesses. The results, in a very little amount of time, were frightening. The kids started to internalize the behaviors they were assigned. The blue-eyed kids became more timid and despondent, while the brown-eyed kids grew more confident and less kind and empathetic to blue-eyed kids. All of the children started to segregate based on eye color. This was a stark example of how quickly prejudice is learned, but on a positive note, it can also be unlearned. Now, not everybody liked Jane Elliott's experiment, especially white parents. After a BBC documentary about her teaching and a bit of fame that followed, Jane Elliott was snubbed by many community members in Riceville, Iowa, where she was from. She said, It was one day. We are worried about white children who experience a couple hours of made-up racism for one day when children of color experience real racism every day of their lives. It didn't stop her, though. She is in her late 80s, and she is still teaching and running anti-racism workshops. She said, Judging people based on skin color is as ridiculous as judging people based on eye color, or gender, religion, or sexual orientation. It's indecent, it's not fair, and it's ignorant. She also said, Prejudice is an attitude. It can't hurt anyone. But discrimination is a behavior, and people get killed every day because of it. I'm going to link that BBC documentary in our show notes. It is on YouTube, and I highly recommend checking it out. It is such an interesting watch. This is the No Nonsense Anti-Racism Podcast. Have you seen the acronyms DEI or D&I? This stands for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, or diversity and inclusion, and refers to training departments or staff at organizations who tackle discrimination and oppression in the workplace. You may have heard of unconscious bias training or maybe creating psychological safety. There's a lot of terms for it, and it has exploded, especially recently, since the global Black Lives Matter movement and the death of George Floyd. Lots of people and places were forced to reckon with these conversations about racism and evaluate how their organizations are either contributing to tackling anti-racism or kind of ignoring this problem. Now, you should know that some organizations have committed to tackling anti-racism and anti-oppression because they faced multiple legal battles. Some are responding to calls for change from within their organization. Some see the business case for diversity And others, honestly, are just following the crowd and doing this kind of training because, well, everyone else is. Maybe you've participated in anti-racism and anti-oppression workshops in your own workplace. Have you reflected on whether it's been effective? Or did you notice that there's been a change for the better or maybe the worst within your organization? Or, quite honestly, within yourself? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. What this anti-racism and anti-oppression workshops are how effective they are, and we're going to hear from someone who does these kind of trainings every single day and her experience as a trainer. So what is it? Well, diversity training refers to teaching with the goal of improving awareness, attitude, 
knowledge, and skills. Diversity and inclusion includes the gamut of anti-oppression, focusing on discrimination based on gender, age, race, sexual orientation, class, physical and or mental abilities. And this can be contextual based on where in the world that you're from. For example, in the European Union, diversity training is offered to small and medium-sized businesses to develop their capacity to include people's various cultures. In Australia, diversity education is usually about ending the history of discrimination against Aboriginal and Islander people. In Asia, you'll find that diversity training is often to increase the productivity of multinational companies and for addressing historical challenges between different ethnic groups. In South Africa, for example, they've implemented diversity education to adjust to the removal of the apartheid system. In North America, many organizations, communities, military sectors, and higher education have been conducting some kind of diversity education since at least the 1960s. Like many of the cultural and societal progress that we currently have, diversity training has been based on racial differences that came from the civil rights movement in the 1960s. With the introduction of the Equal Employment Law and Affirmative Action in the U.S., management positions became a battleground in the attempts to desegregate mostly white-collar workplaces. Gender diversity education emerged during the 70s and the 80s, and in the 1990s, there was greater focus on barriers to inclusion for other identity groups, such as those with different physical and mental abilities and differences, religious differences, and the LGBTQ community. Many institutions now recognize that diversity is important in a business sense, but in the 80s and 90s, this kind of training was mostly made to protect institutions from civil rights lawsuits. Another change that's happened over time is the focus on diversity education instead of diversity training, which some have argued distances the workshops from a negative connotation, which diversity training has gotten. Most importantly, diversity education slash training has evolved since the end of World War II to include psychology as an important aspect of understanding from a deep level where bias comes from. The horrors of World War II forced many people to think about why and the ways in which humans discriminated against one another, such as what took place during the Holocaust and slavery and segregation in the U.S., Some of the most impactful work came from a Black American social psychologist and diversity consultant named Dr. Price Cobbs. Price Michelle Cobbs was a Black psychiatrist, author, and management consultant from Los Angeles, California. He was born November 2nd, 1928. Cobbs developed the method of the interracial encounter groups in 1960s California. He ran weekend seminars to break down stereotypes through something called sensory awareness exercises, which were essentially putting people from different racial groups together in a room to have meaningful conversations and connections. Most importantly, Cobbs co-wrote a book called Black Rage that examined the full range of Black life in America as it butted against systemic racism and white supremacy. This book was also released after the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., so Black Rage was everywhere. Take a listen to a clip from an interview with Dr. Price Cobbs about his book, Black Rage. The primary problem at this point is black-white, but I think it's really much deeper than that. It goes to the heart of the white man's psyche, where he thinks and feels that he indeed is superior to other people, and this has to stop. What effect do you think militants like the Black Panthers, for instance, have on the cause of the Negro? All black people are angry, not just a few militants whom one may see on television. Black people in this country have had it. They're angry, they want in, and they want everything that any other citizen has. And I think white America has to realize this in a very fundamental, basic fashion. Do you feel that maybe this statement is adding to what might be termed the white rage? I doubt it. Uh, We have every reason to believe, and I think most observers of the contemporary scene can understand 
that the racism that white people feel is a very hostile thing. I believe it was Martin Luther King who said that uh, it was not his activities that were producing uh, the hostility on the part of whites. It was simply uh, uncovering that hostility which was already there. And I'm afraid the same thing is happening here, that uh, the militants don't produce white hostility. They simply uh, expose that which is already there. Right. I think it's the same problem. What we have are racists who have heretofore been silent, who now feel more free to jump up and say something. Dr. Price Cobbs passed away on June 25th, 2018. And although a lot has changed since the 1960s, a lot hasn't. He passed with that understanding after a lifetime of work and advocacy. And it's wild to hear that interview with him and his friend, Dr. William H. Greyer, which took place over 50 years ago. 50 years, and you could swap that conversation out for today's conversations about racial justice. So this kind of training has been taking place in different ways since the 1960s. But is it effective? Unfortunately, the data is showing that many trainings are not. Diversity training in many institutions is actually making the workplace less diverse and racism is activated instead of curbed. This is largely in part because workplaces are not doing the hard and necessary work of identifying ways that their processes, practices, and culture sows the opportunity for bias and is rooted in structural racism. They're saying things like, diversity is great, we wanna celebrate it. Or their messages are negative and threatening, If you don't do this training, you'll be fired. And this causes people to buckle down in their behaviors and attitudes. The Harvard Business Review, along with several researchers, created three anti-bias trainings to test a sample group from a large international organization to measure the impact of these trainings to see how and if an intervention affects employee attitudes and behaviors. The test was completed by more than 3,000 employees. The sample was 61.5% male, 38.5% female. It included employees from 63 different countries and was composed of about 25% managers. The team created three versions of a one-hour online training course. One focused on addressing gender bias, one on addressing biases of all sorts, so that included gender, age, race, sexual orientation. And the third was a control trial, which did not mention bias and instead focused on psychological safety. The findings held some good news, but mostly bad news. Bias training had a positive effect on the attitudes of some employees, especially those who were initially the least supportive of women in the workplace. Unfortunately, there was very little evidence that this training affected the behavior of men, and particularly white men, overall. Two groups who are often the primary targets of these interventions because of the dynamics of many organizations. But it doesn't mean that we should give up on this training in the workplace. It just means that we need to rethink and reframe with a data-driven approach. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about what we can do to improve diversity and inclusion training, and we will talk to somebody who does this work every single day. We hope you're enjoying these episodes with us. It is really important that we're getting factual, historical, contextually relevant information out there into the universe. We are doing this with the support of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. Thank you. If you are enjoying listening to this podcast, please make sure to write us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps us to get more visibility so that we can reach more people, reach more Canadians, and get knowledge out into the universe. So make sure to write a review wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. So we heard about the ways in which diversity, inclusion, and anti-oppression training has largely been ineffective, and it's because it hasn't really changed since the 1990s, and even before that, since the 1960s. 
In the research on how these kind of trainings can be effective, a lot of the research said that the best outcomes come from a few different things. Number one is training with active rather than passive forms of instruction. So exercises, experiential learning, instead of just sitting and watching a video or being lectured. Face-to-face rather than computer-based formats are also more effective in changing attitudes of participants. Number two, looking at trainee motivation, noting why the staff is there, what they hope to learn, and how they're going to apply it is really important. Third, activities that bring people together from diverse cultures to allow them to connect and learn from one another is much more effective than passive rote learning, essentially. Number four, it needs to be consistently embedded instead of reactionary to an event. If it feels like it's ticking a box, people will not take it seriously. It is a training that has to happen over a sustained, long period of time. Lastly, measure, measure, measure. Organizations will not know if they're making progress if they are not tracking this progress. Some other things that have come up in the research is that buy-in needs to happen at the top for it to be effective. If junior staff and middle management see and think that senior staff are not taking this seriously, well, why should they? And when they see that, why should they have faith that anything will change substantially within their organization? A lot of the research also said that this training needs to be voluntary. It's probably right. You need to get the people involved who really care and will live and champion these values within the organization. Personally, I think it needs to be mandatory, at least a foundational understanding, and then perhaps if staff want to level up, then it can be voluntary. Doing this research, though, there are quite a lot of things that surprised me as absolute no-nos if you want diversity to stick in the workplace. Two of these things include cancelling hiring tests and reevaluating how performance reviews are done. First, on hiring tests, The research shows that these tests are only being used to confirm existing bias and are not being applied equally to all candidates. While studying this practice in an organization using a math test, Professor Lauren Rivera found that the hiring team paid little attention when white men blew the math test, but close attention when women and black people did. On performance reviews, Research has found that this isn't necessarily an objective tool to assess people's skills in terms of trying to improve diversity in the workplace. And research showed that although it's something that's supposed to be objective, actually becomes quite subjective because raters lower the performance of women and people of color. So everything we've talked about has been from a perspective of research, which is great, but I also want to pair this with the lived experience of somebody who does this for a living. Danae Mehetiev is an equity, diversity, and anti-Black racism educator with over five years of experience developing and delivering programs for youth and adults in educational and community settings, both locally and across Canada. She currently works as a consultant for various organizations and as a facilitator for the 4Rs Youth Movement, which is a nonprofit youth-driven initiative working to change relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous young people from across the country. Tonight is a loving, joyful human who is passionate about her community, her spirit, and plant-based cooking. I can absolutely confirm all of this. (laughs) She lives with gratitude on Treaty 13 lands, also known as Mississauga, and has been recently working to cultivate intentional spaces of community, care, and liberation for BIPOC folks. She is a proud Eritrean diaspora committed to learning more about her ancestry and culture on her journey home. She is an amazing human and consultant. So if you are looking for someone, I highly recommend working with her and I will include all of her contact information in the show notes and on our social media. Hi, Danai. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's so nice to be here. I'm so grateful. Thank you. It's so nice to have you. I've wanted to have you on for a long time. I'm being a little selfish and I'll admit that for all of our (laughs) listeners. (laughs) I know we have been having these conversations, I feel like, since Humber. Absolutely. For years, we've just been talking about these kind of 
challenges with social justice, racial justice, anti-Black racism, white supremacy, all of the things for a long time. So definitely you're one of the people that I thought, let's get you on here officially. Let's talk about this officially on a podcast. Thank you. (laughs) So my first question, I did just read off your bio, but it would be really good to hear about you, who you are from yourself. So please do tell us a little bit about yourself in your own words. So uh, my name is Denight. It means peacemaker in Tigrinya, which is, you know, the language and the name of my tribe, Eritrea gang. Woohoo. Um, and I'm also calling in from what we call Mississauga, which is part of Treaty 13A lands. And so I want to acknowledge, yeah, that, that positionality that I hold as uh, somebody who is a Black woman on stolen land, my position as a diaspora. I'm the first generation in my lineage to be born and raised outside of Eritrea. So yeah, this it's, it's something that I think definitely impacts my, my worldview, who mm-hmm. I am, how I show up in this work. And so I just want to, you know, give a moment of gratitude for the, the people, the indigenous ancestors and the indigenous people who are like fighting for this land right now and always and protecting the water. I'd be remiss if I didn't start with that. And as you said, I've been doing some diversity and equity education work for the past five years. So you've been very busy. It's been great to to keep up with all of the things that you're doing. So it's great to hear that you are working in the diversity and inclusion space and have been for quite a few years now. When did you start doing diversity and inclusion training and anti-Black racism specifically? And why? Why did you want to get involved in this work? This is a great question, and it made me reflect on how, in an unpaid, unacknowledged way, I can honestly say that I've been doing this work since 2015. But in a paid capacity, I, it's been a little over five years, like I mentioned. I started my work with diversity and equity training at Harmony Movement and moved into the work that I'm doing now, which is consulting that focuses more specifically on anti-Black racism in 2019. And so interestingly enough, I feel like this work found me back in grade 11. I had participated in this eight-week program focusing on diversity and equity hosted by Harmony Movement. And I recall being so surprised to see a Black female as our facilitator. So she was just brilliant, compassionate, and honestly, I had never felt so seen before. So she and the program gave me a lot of language to explain and name experiences that I was having to navigate at the time, you know, discrimination, racism back in 2005, you know, in that era where these, these terms weren't as um, loudly spoken and we didn't really hear much about that. So fast forward and cut to 2017, after I had tried my hand at international development work, there was an opening to, to be a facilitator with Harmony Movement and things just aligned and I came back to Toronto to take on that role. And what drew me back from international development was this desire to impact change in my own backyard. I really don't think people understand the importance of representation for Black youth because we seldom get that opportunity to see ourselves represented in positions of power and influence. And so that absolutely impacts our ability to see ourselves as capable of achieving those roles And it also means that those spaces, if we make it in, tend to be very harmful. So many interesting nuggets there. I love the point about how this work found you and how it does feel like that's something I hear from a lot of women of color specifically. It's the lived experiences are often driving us to doing this kind of work because it's a necessity. There's a gap and and women of color especially are filling that. I think that's really interesting. And your point about naming the experience of like otherness that you were feeling and how it took this like one, one woman, one woman of color in a position that you could like look up to, to kind of enlighten you in that way. And you're absolutely right. Like we often feel othered in different ways, but don't understand what it is. Like systemic racism as a concept can be really complicated, so being able to have that like broken down and and be able to identify with that, I'm sure was like really powerful. And it happened at school, which unfortunately, there's still a huge gap in terms of education and in, in that way. It was such an interesting thing to have uh, done that program in grade 11 and then 10 years later to be a facilitator and to see that the need still existed, that there was still sometimes resistance in communities and in some schools and also a lack of funding to support this kind of work, even though there was a need. 
And then obviously Harmony Movement went through a period where funding was was cut. And so it's just such an interesting thing to see now this resurgence of relevance in this work. Yeah, it's just it's a fascinating thing to witness how it's been so long. And yes, we've made progress, right? There's a lot more in the collective psyche. I feel like there's a lot more understanding and acknowledgement, but sometimes it it feels very much like people think the work ends there. And so that's also been something really interesting to watch. Mm -hmm. That Yeah, that full circle (laughs) to experience it as a young person, to then be in the organization, to see the kind of like trials and tribulations of what it takes to do this work in a really like, and trying to do it in a long-term sustainable way. And then like unfortunate reality of like funding of all things to be a challenging is quite a shame. And you're absolutely right. There's such a resurgence now in terms of like anti-racism movements and education. And yeah, it's interesting to hear. So today's episode is really breaking down the concept of diversity and inclusion training um, and how unfortunately some of these trainings are largely ineffective in long-term change in organizations. Does your experience as a trainer reflect this? Like, what are your thoughts on this? I love this question. And I want to be really clear here when, when saying that the thing that makes DNI trainings largely ineffective is not the actual content. It's the delivery and the way that this work is brought into institutions and organizations. Uh, the problem with these trainings as a Band-Aid solution is that they oftentimes are being done reactively instead of proactively. And so I'll often be in spaces where something that can't quite be swept under the rug has happened. You know, it's like a little too much for HR to handle. And so these workplaces bring in the DNI consultants for a two hour training to give this entire 101, fix all the problems that have taken so much longer than just two hours to create. And so that's where I think these trainings become ineffective is when they're treated like a checklist item. And they can also be really counterproductive when workplaces don't consider the power dynamics that can impact how participants can engage in the session. So for instance, having like a CEO and supervisors and people who are in positions of power, and most of the time they're white, when you have them in the same room as maybe frontline or customer facing staff who are largely racialized, do you think that these these folks are going to have the, the same level of confidence to address the, the issues that they're seeing in the workplace. A lot of these times, like the interns, the people with short-term contracts who have trauma from previously precarious working environments, and even their, maybe their contracts are precarious right now. This is the thing that boggles my mind is that workplaces, I'm always so curious, like, do you really think that folks are going to be comfortable to speak honestly in those sessions? When they're trying to, you know, bring up microaggressions in the workplace or times where, you know, things have been inappropriate, right? How many times have I heard folks say, yeah, like black women say, yeah, you know, I had my supervisor, like, you know, ask to touch my hair and I myself have even faced this, you know, I don't want it to happen, but I also feel like if I say no, will it be awkward? Will I be reprimanded? Will, you know, something be compromised? And so, yeah, I think that. It's challenging for these DNI trainings to be effective when we're not asking how can we make this environment safe for Black, Indigenous, and people of color employees to speak up, um, to share their experiences, and also so that they're not necessarily just like there as like your educators. You know, I think that there's something there around how how the sessions are um, created. Right? There's Not everybody is at the same level. And so to just require that this two-hour training is going to meet everybody where they're at, also be engaging, also fix all these problems. Like if you really think about it, it's ridiculous. But somehow that gets lost in the in the requests and the call for quotes or proposals. So yeah, so many good points. The reactive versus proactive, the power dynamics of play. And you're absolutely right. Like a two-hour session 
often is a checklist. It's a checklist item, but is expected to then dismantle hundreds of years of systemic racism. Like that's a big job (laughs) that you have. It's, It's just so fascinating. And then it also doesn't take into like, this is why I'm like, it's not just about race. There's so many other isms. There's so many layers to this, right? Because it doesn't take into account different learning styles. It doesn't take into account all the different nuance, right? Not every black person has the same experience. Not every, you know, yeah. When we don't consider all of the layers that are a part of this work, right? People's positionality, how we do this work in, in a way that is engaging, right? Because I think when we aren't having conversations, when it's just somebody speaking at you it's very passive learning and so that is where I see a big disconnect where people you know they're there but they're not there because they're not required to be right and so if you're going to have conversations there are things that need to happen before that right like you need there needs to be an atmosphere of safety there needs to be but I mean arguably can you create that in two hours even four hours no but at least you can create some like wait. There are ways to to bring people's barriers or um, not barriers, but their defenses down. But all of that can't happen in these short periods of time, which is what always happens. And so then, yeah, that's yeah. how you have these ineffective trainings. And I'm I can only imagine that in so many of these, you really do have to build trust and rapport, and that also takes time. That doesn't exist in all workspaces, so it's not easy. It isn't. And you're absolutely right. And I think that like the the other piece that I was thinking about when reflecting on this is also there's a lack of thought when it comes to what are the actionable items that folks are going to take away from this. Like there's kind of this, this idea that you do this training and then at the end, you're going to get the list of like, do all these things and you'll be an ally. No, that's actually not what this is, right? Like for me, a good, a good training session is we're having conversations. People are asking themselves hard questions. They're not going to leave feeling like, ah, so much closure, like closure. I, I feel like everything has been tied up neatly. No, it's, it's actually a challenging process. Like it's, it's uncomfortable. You're having to grapple with questions that you won't be able to find immediate answers for. And, you know, it can't be solved with just like a policy or a statement of solidarity and thinking that that's going to translate to safe anti-racist workplaces. Anti-racism is active, it's uncomfortable, it's challenging. And you need to ask yourself, how am I going to bring this into my role? How am I going to bring this into my community, into my family? Like bring it up as conversations of dinner, like dinner conversations. I've had sessions where when there are multiple days, folks have said, you know, like actually I, I brought this up at the dinner table and I was surprised to see how much my children actually knew about this and they were educating me and we opened up this conversation or, you know, people saying, yeah, I brought it up to, to a friend and we had a disagreement or I was talking to my parents and I realized like, you know, how racist they are. And, and it was, like, it was very hard for me to, to grapple with that. And yes, like that's challenging, but that's the work, right? You know, I think People think it's just like this this thing you read it and then you're done. The homework's done, but unfortunately that's not that's not what this is. So I think when you when we shift the expectation around DNI trainings, right? And diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism, anti-oppression, like all of the the different titles that these workshops take, I think regardless, there needs to be an adjustment of what the expectation is. Yeah, so important. And that continual learning, I mean. Unlearning can take years and some workplaces maybe are, are thinking about how they're going to take their staff and organizations along, but I'm sure many of them are not thinking about that, which also I think brings me to my next question. What kind of shifts do you think are necessary to facilitate long-term change? I think we spoke to this a little bit already, but what are also some trends that you organizations or other DNI professionals are seeing? Yeah, you're right. We definitely have touched on this. One of the things that I had written here was stop trying to bring us into your toxic workplaces for two hour sessions to try and fix everything. I think that there needs to be hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. It sounds harsh, but truly, I think that this is there needs to be more communication that's welcomed 
you know, especially from supervisors, from managers, like ask, listen to your, to your employees, you know, like this is one of the things I, I, I hear so much is like, have conversations with your colleagues because typically that doesn't happen. And also listen to your black employees. So many times they are saying the same thing as the person that you bring in, right? The consultant that you bring in. And there have been times where, you know, I've had post-session conversations with the black employees of the institution or the, the workplace, and they feel so frustrated that their colleagues are acting brand new. Or maybe they're not acting. Maybe they genuinely are like, oh, I haven't heard this before because they're not listening when their colleagues are telling them about these things. And so I think that there's there's something to be said about respecting the lived experience of the people that you work with and recognizing that we don't all have the same experience at the workplace. I think that's something that that doesn't click for everybody is that just because we both have a smile on and like, you know, we're doing our work doesn't mean we have the same experience of this place. If I'm as a black woman going into this workplace where I know there's always going to be comments on my hair or my clothes or like just my, my person. And there's always going to be like these kind of comments that are cutting at me, right? These microaggressions, even though it might seem funny or like lighthearted or it's, it's not meant to be offensive to other people. If it is making my work situation uncomfortable, that's going to have an impact and a toll on my health, right? My mental health, my physical being, like coming into work and how dreadful that is sometimes. And so, yeah, I just, I think that there needs to be a moment of pause for organizations to ask like, Hey, you know, what is the experience that you're having here? And not to get defensive because that's also a trap that I see so much when we ask for like anonymous feedback is that employees will say, Oh yeah, we're asked for feedback. But then when we give it, we're either, you know, scolded or reprimanded for it, or we have to deal with, you know, the white fragility that you've mentioned on this podcast, the defensiveness, the hostility. So it's just like, there needs to be also some work that happens on the part of quote unquote allies, right? To make the workplace and environment conducive for humble learning. And then the other thing that I think is really big and sometimes a little awkward to, to talk about is the fact that there needs to be a shift in who you're hiring. You need to start hiring black indigenous and people of color for roles of leadership. Um, the higher up you go into an organization, the more white and male it gets, and this needs to change. And so make of that what you will to the, to the listeners, but you know, it's like, it's going to keep, it's a, it's a feedback loop. If everybody at the top is a white male, and they're sending out their recruitments to like hire to their networks who, you know, if they're sticking to their in-group, as you've also mentioned, it's going to continue to perpetuate this, this cycle. Whether conscious or not, I think your point about listening to your staff is so important. Don't get defensive 100% and diversify your staff. If you have more diversity in your organization... You will, I mean, to your point, not everyone's experiences are the same, but diversity at least ensures throughout the organization, not just at the bottom, that some of these kind of challenges are being worked through already that like it demonstrates that your organization is doing the hard work before bringing in, yeah, like consultants to your point of like, you're here, fix all of our problems. Mm, Not that easy. No, it's not how it works. Yeah. And it makes me think about too, like in conversations, there's very seldom pause to say, who's not here? Who's not in this conversation right now? What perspectives are we missing? You know, and you brought up intersectionality in the earlier podcast. And I think that that's something that really needs to be considered when, when making programs, when, you know, creating policy, when having conversations, right? You hear so much not about us without us. And so really thinking about that, asking, okay, which perspectives aren't here? Like, let's, let's actually do an audit of ourselves, right? Because at, just because I'm a black woman doesn't mean that I understand all of the isms or the oppressions, right? I'm able-bodied. So there's a lot of things I'm, I'm, 
I'm often missing because of the way that the system prioritizes and privileges able bodies, right? And so, yeah, I think that even if we look at the the pandemic as a teacher of this, right, as a as a way for us to collectively reassess, oh, what possibilities exist for us to be more inclusive in, you know, allowing people to work from home. That wasn't an option that existed before. And, and, and that might seem like, where's the link? Where is she going with this? But actually, this is, this is an example of the systemic racism, right? I, I remember, I recall being in a uh, breakout for a session once. And the, the folks that I was in a session with were saying that this pandemic has given them the opportunity to be hired because they weren't able to leave their homes. And so they couldn't access work before because remote working was just you know, frowned upon or seen as an impossibility. But now, since everybody's working from home, you know, we, we have no choice. The shift has happened. And so I guess I also ask in thinking about what shifts can happen to facilitate long-term change, don't be so quick to shut down like ideas about how to be more inclusive, right? Like even, you know, with the world reopening now, I'm, a lot of the narrative that we're hearing is to get people back into offices, but it's just like pause for a moment to consider all of the, all of the ways systemic racism impacts like black indigenous people of color, not only in the workplace, but in their lives, which impacts how they show up in your workplace. Right? So if them working from home means that they can finally like be able to take care of their their family, their household in the ways that they need to, which helps them maybe save money on daycare or be able to, you know, whatever, whatever the, the situation might be. This is going to impact how people can be productive, right? Instead of prioritizing the elite few who can mm-hmm. commute back and forth, who can afford to lose two to three hours a day commuting. Yeah, 100%. It affects who can participate in the workforce, how they can participate, and to your yeah, to your point, remote work has definitely I've definitely even thought about it as a luxury of like, wow, I get to stay home and and continue to do my job in a way that I was doing before and has impacted my life. And I mean, I feel like it's a big impact, but when I compare it to to the way other people are living, where remote work is a necessity for them, that's not something that I, I thought about. Because I because of my privilege, I haven't had to. So it's a good reminder. And to your earlier point too, about like how organizations can can do this kind of better. I was reflecting on how sometimes and quite often actually, the work of anti-racism and anti-oppression is often put on the people who bring it up in a workspace. And they're like, oh, okay, since you've identified that this is an issue, can you figure it out for us? And like, just change, like do what you can, put together a one hour workshop, whatever that is, that should be enough. <laughs> so I can only imagine how frustrating that is for folks too. Oh my gosh, the dreaded lunch and learn, like, oh no. <laughs> and like, thank you for, for saying that because I don't want what I've said to kind of be taken on as, you know, by like maybe someone who's listening, who's like, ah, I knew I should have really pushed, pushed Raquel to, to tell me. <laughs> more about the microaggressions like no that's not what we're saying what i'm saying is merely to listen when someone is saying hey there's a problem here or like hey this happened and it was it was uncomfortable or you know and then bring in who you need to to help facilitate a conversation or you know because there is expertise in navigating these conversations right like and there are some you do i think that organizations like to try and do this work within it when there's still like there's wounds right there's there's trauma there's like pain and hurt that's been inflicted so it's just like to require the people that are in it to also you know be objective third parties to help work through all of that um, is a lot and so just seeking the support and yeah not requiring your black employees to hold Black History Month or your Indigenous employees to hold all of Indigenous History Month. Same thing. Like, no, that's, (laughs) can you imagine? Like what it's saying is like, I can't be bothered. And also when they're doing this additional work, it is not for additional pay. Never. (laughs) It's never for additional pay. (laughs) 
but it's a growth opportunity. You're stretching. Sure. Mm, you stretch. That's okay. You stretch. I'm good. Mm-hmm. Unlearning takes a lot of time. And that is something like people have to really want to do it. Organizations also have a lot of unlearning to do as an institution. Some of them really not knowing how they are propping up systemic racism and systemic oppression as institutions. I think we're seeing these conversations so much, especially like Ryerson University potentially changing the name because of its history and link to residential schools. So institutions in in and of itself have a lot of work to do and a lot of reflecting to do. And I'm happy to say that since, I mean, it's, it's such an unfortunate reason for us to be having these conversations, but since George Floyd's murder last year, There is a reckoning that everybody, every organization, every politician, every organization has to really do in terms of like, okay, what does this mean for me? Like that is the killing of a black man in the street is not an isolated incident. That is what systemic racism looks like. And it looks like a lot of other things in a lot of different ways. So there is like a momentum for, for change that I'm, I'm happy to see. And and I guess especially like you must be really busy. <laughs> Everyone wants to do diversity and inclusion work. It's true. It's true. And I, that that has also been something I'm glad that you brought that up, which has been hard to grapple with to see the resurgence of interest in anti-Black racism work after what happened with George Floyd. And it's it's painful on a lot of levels. It's also really painful because we get swept up in the narrative of anti-Black racism doesn't happen here in Canada. And so people get so focused on what happens in in the States and not to say that it's not important, but we also, we have anti-Black racism here as well as, as you've covered, right? Regis Korsinski Paquette, um, Andrew Loku, Abdirahman Abdi, you know, Jermaine Carby, Colton Bushi. Like there's so many, like we could, the list is robust and it's devastating that it is, but we need to also, I think, give that space as well. And I think that that's also another shift that needs to happen for long-term change is this like shift from wanting to focus on what's happening in the United States and bringing it to our Canadian context, to our own backyard. Because I think that that's a, that's a way that people can, I guess, rid themselves of this feeling of maybe like the, the guilt that might happen. If you think about, Oh, I'm complicit in this system. Or, oh, there's actually so much I have to learn about here, you know, even with what's happening right now with with all of these unmarked graves and like how this is such a painful time, especially I can imagine for like indigenous activists, organizers, community who's been saying, like, listen to us. We know that there's so much that has has not been, you know, acknowledged reconciliation can't start until we acknowledge these things. But now people are going to start to be like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. I can't imagine like, you know what that feels like to be like, we've been telling you this, but also finally. So I think that that's a big piece around like that learning that we have to do individually. We have to take it upon ourselves, right? People are like, Oh, it's overwhelming. There's too much, like there's too much out there. Mm -hmm. Um, but I ask you, did you, did you learn, not you, but I mean, to the viewer, the listener, (laughs) did you learn how to make banana bread or sourdough or Dalgona coffee this, this pandemic? So if you did those things, you can research how to be a better ally, like how to show up for indigenous people, how to show up for black people. You could do that research Mm -hmm. if there's a desire to learn. Yeah. And there is, I mean, it is hard because there are cycles of like interest and conversation and it's in the media now. And I have this fear that the momentum is going to disappear. And I, I, it, it, it actually keeps me up at night. <laughs> Same. Uh, I hear you. And that's something that, you know, I think what I, what I appreciate about the conversations happening right now is that even though it does sometimes feel very tokenistic, people are starting to wake up in a way that I don't think was happening before. And I think that's a result of like this pandemic in conjunction with everything happening, right? Like people really have to sit with themselves and think about all of these things or they're seeing it. And so like, 
I don't know, maybe, maybe this is the eternal optimist in me, but something really wants to keep hope alive that more people are waking up to the ways that systemic racism is insidious, that it, you know, shows up in all of the different ways that we don't even see, right? And how we consume and how we work and how we demand or expect Black people to offer their labor for free, Indigenous people to offer their labor for free, like it's their job to educate. I think when we start to, to look at this, this work as all the system, like we need to start challenging all the systems, not just race. It's not just about race. It's also about class and ability. It's about immigration, detention camps. You know, it's all of it. And so capitalism. So yeah, we can start to say the words. I think that that's a big difference that I've also seen in doing this work five years ago where I couldn't even say white supremacy in a workshop to now, yeah, people still have their backs up and they're very defensive, but at least, at least we can start to name these things. And even if you look at the youth right now and how on it they are and how quick they are to say, absolutely not that is not okay. I will not stand for that. And I take so much inspiration from that because, you know, people will say what they want to say about cancel culture, but I like, you know, it's, it's accountability culture. You are going to take accountability for what you did and what you're saying and how you're showing up. So Mm -hmm. I'm correct. It's so nice to hear. And I, especially from somebody who's like embedded in this work on a, on a daily basis that there is still hope and young people are the hope. People are also in general are are coming out and shifting mindsets. So it's really nice to hear that there is still hope. The eternal optimist is always a good, (laughs) it's always good to have. We have to have, I think anybody who is doing this work is probably an eternal optimist. Yeah, it's the, it's the only way because when I'm in the when I'm in those spirals of like nothing is changing, it's not. It's, my ancestors want better for me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much tonight. It's been such a pleasure to hear from you. I feel better <laughs> if you say that there is change. I also see it, but it's just uh, yeah. It also has kind of sparked the eternal optimist in me as well. So thank you so much for chatting with me today. And thank you. And thank you for all this heavy lifting that you're doing in this education work. It's not easy to have these conversations, especially with so much resistance. And so I really, I salute you. So that's it for today's episode. A huge, huge thank you to Denight for joining us today. All of her social media will be included in the show notes, so do make sure to connect with her. To conclude, do not lose hope for anti-racism and anti-oppression work as long as it is done right. We will link the research and references in the show notes that you can take a look. If you are somebody in HR, if you're somebody who wants to bring this kind of training to your organization, these are references that could potentially help you. Thank you for joining us today in solidarity. We'll see you next week. Bye.